Okay, thank you, Yossi. Yes, uh, I've also enjoy, I've especially enjoyed your introduction. Shavuot <laughs> Tov, um, everyone. Uh, Rabbi Asher ben Yechiel, known as the Rush, one of the most renowned halachic scholars and uh, uh, codifiers in Jewish history, uh, lived in Germany and then in Spain in the end of the 13th and the beginning of the 14th centuries. In one of his responses, in a tshuva, he was replying to a question of halacha when he was prompted to remark about the study of philosophy. Said the Rush, Berich Rachmana Dishazvina Blessed be the Lord who has spared me any knowledge of philosophy. Now why a 14th century uh, rabbinic authority uh, in Spain would make such a comment is a question that I hope we'll address uh, this evening as we consider the topic of ban and counterban, uh, the uh, controversy over philosophy in medieval Jewish society. In some ways, this is a sequel to last week's uh, discussion. That was a more text-oriented discussion. You may notice you have no handouts tonight uh, for the first time. This is more of a straight academic lecture. But the, uh, this is, in, in one way, a sequel to our discussion of the Rambam's attitude toward the relationship between the Torah Shabal Peh and the uh, philosophic tradition. And I'd like to underscore one point that I highlighted last week. It'll run through this week's um, discussion as well. And that is when medieval scholars refer to the to philosophy, the study of philosophy or the philosophic tradition, philosophia, what they mean is the whole gamut of the traditional liberal arts and sciences from logic and math to the natural sciences, to physics, to metaphysics, ethics, psychology, all of that, the truths of those disciplines uh, are part of this uh, study. Uh, and with that, and by the way, uh, all of that, all of those disciplines were comprised uh, or comprise uh, uh, the Aristotelian legacy that medieval scholars were working with, in which they considered authoritative, uh, the Aristotelian corpus of uh, philosophic disciplines. Okay, with that, we're ready to tell our tale concerning the controversy over the study of philosophy in the medieval Jewish community. Our story, our story begins a few centuries prior to the rush, even prior to the Rambam. Uh, we need to move back to the beginning of the golden age, the so-called golden age of the Jews in the Muslim part of Spain, uh, an age which lasted from the 10th century, the middle of the 10th century, until the middle of the 12th century. Uh, now, this was not that golden in age uh, politically. The Jews were subject to various forms of discrimination, uh, special taxation. There were latent tensions that sometimes broke through to the surface in rather unpleasant manifestations. The massacre of the Jews of Granada in 1066 comes to mind. Um, but culturally speaking, uh, there was something golden about this uh, period of activity uh, of the Jews in Muslim Spain. Uh, this was the first major encounter of uh, Judaism with a flourishing, sophisticated culture in Europe, and it produced a uniquely uh, Judeo-Arabic uh, synthesis, uh, a synthesis of the new modes of thinking that were written in Arabic and the traditional uh, Hebrew uh, classical rabbinic tradition. And this synthesis was expressed in a flowering of uh, Jewish literature written in many genres, uh, written primarily in the Arabic language, uh, but, uh, uh, but written by Jews. 
And the genres of this literature included not only the traditional legal literature of halacha and piyut, liturgical poetry, but also there were Jewish works being written now on philology as Jews sought uh, the, uh, the, to find the fundamental elements of the Hebrew language. They began to write systematic grammars, sifrei dikta. Uh, secular poetry began to be written, again under the influence of the society around them. It was composed in biblical idiom, but in Arabic meter, often on uh, the themes that were found in Arabic secular poetry. Uh, philosophy, as we mentioned before, that is, they uh, took the whole Aristotelian philosophic tradition that was translated into Arabic and made access uh, and uh, given Arabic commentaries and now is made accessible to Jews in uh, Muslim Spain. They took this and they used it to try to better understand Torah. That is, they tried to, uh, this makes them religious philosophers, they tried to apply uh, what they learned in the disciplines of the sciences, of the arts and sciences, uh, toward a better appreciation or demonstration of the principles of uh, religious belief. Thus, for example, uh, principles of physics might be used to demonstrate the existence of God, as the Rambam tries to do in the second part of the Mar Nebuchim, uh, or principles of ethics might be used to try to demonstrate uh, the reasons for some of the commandments. Um, that whole philosophic literature is composed uh, under the influence of this uh, synthesis in, uh, in, in the Golden Age. Uh, there is also, uh, we also find new modes of biblical commentary, biblical exegesis, that are influenced both by the new philological study and the new philosophical study. They produce new types of commentaries. Um, in different directions, by the way, because philology, grammar, will, big book will take you towards pshat, exclusively pshat commentary. Philosophy will take you to drash. You try to find the philosophic uh, dimension, the, uh, the trash of the pasta, but that's another story. Uh, the scope of this Judeo-Arabic culture is quite extraordinary. In some ways, it anticipates uh, phenomena that are usually associated with uh, centuries later with the Renaissance. And uh, you do indeed have not only the scope of uh, this literature, uh, a very broad scope as you have later in the Renaissance, but you also have Renaissance men before the Renaissance. You have individuals who are versatile in many different uh, fields from among these different uh, genres. Now, one more preliminary point so that we can tell our story. Um, this, the broad scope of this Judeo-Arabic culture that was cultivated in the golden age of the Jews in Spain uh, stands in sharp contrast to what was going on in uh, Germany and France during the same period, 10th century to the 12th century, Jews in Germany and Jews in France uh, cultivated an intensively rabbinic uh, culture, a monolithically rabbinic culture. They studied Talmud and more Talmud, and there was, uh, uh, they were, and, and in these communities which were under Christian rule, not under Muslim rule, they were not familiar with any of the Arabic literature or any of the philosophic tradition that had been translated into Arabic, uh, they were not stimulated by the society around them, the Christian society around them, to any interest in philosophy, science, uh, philology, secular, uh, for the most part, philology, or secular poetry. Uh, so you have this contrast between the two uh, major Jewish cultures, uh, Sephardic and Ashkenazic, uh, in this period of Europe. Now, the golden age of the Jews in Muslim Spain comes to a rather abrupt end in uh, approximately 1148, started a few years before that. Uh, what happened at that time? This is when the Almohads, the Almuvachadin, came in uh, and a fanatical Islamic group conquered a good deal of, um, of uh, the area of Muslim Spain 
and uh, they emphasized the exclusiveness of Islam to the point where they gave the Jews the choice of either uh, conversion or, or expulsion. At first, conversion or death, it was changed to conversion or expulsion. Uh, so, at this point, this is when, for example, the Rambam's family flees, and uh, he indeed is able to continue uh, writing this kind of uh, Judeo-Arab uh, cultural uh, uh, literature uh, in uh, northern Africa. He goes eventually to Egypt and continues to write in Arabic. But as far as Europe is concerned, this whole Judeo-Arabic tradition written by Jews had reached a critical crossroads because in terms of Europe, there was no other place uh, where people understood Arabic. Jews in, in Europe were in Christian Europe, whether it was northern Spain, which was Christian, or whether it was France or Germany. Uh, and one could have uh, thought, it's, uh, it's conceivable, that at this point in history, all of this work that was done in these many different genres might have been lost, might have disappeared. Why not? Because uh, nobody could read it. Uh, it could, if Jews were expelled with their literature, then one could conceive of the possibility that, uh, that they would take their, uh, uh, that the culture would be expelled along with them and it would have no influence in subsequent centuries on Jews in Christian Europe and hence very little influence on us today. Uh, but that's not what happened. Indeed, uh, what happened instead is an uh, intense and fascinating effort at transmission and preservation of this entire culture written by Jews in Arabic, preserving it for the Jews of Christian Europe who didn't know any Arabic. And in order to trace this development and its ramifications, we have to trace the path, the roots, uh, taken by some of the refugees from Muslim Spain after they were expelled, uh, and see what they did. Uh, most important for our concerns are two families. The uh, well-known families, the Tibbon family, the Ibn Tibbon, or the Tibbonites, as they're sometimes called, uh, and the Kimchi family. The Radak, or David Kimchi, is a member of this family. His father, Rav Yosef Kimchi, uh, was part of this first group from, uh, who made their way. Uh, where did they go? From Spain, they went to southern France, to Provence, to Narbonne, to Lunel. And there, they began to... Uh, translate. They simply uh, began to uh, translate from Arabic into Hebrew um, uh, virtually the whole um, Judeo-Arabic uh, literary legacy. Uh, now, the Tibbanites, the Ibn Tibbans, uh, specialized in the translation of philosophic works. Uh, and they started, they seem to have, if you uh, follow the progression of their translations, they seem to uh, do it sort of pedagogically, with a pedagogic order. That is, they started with a somewhat easier work to make them more uh, easily accessible to Jews who had never studied any of this material. Uh, for example, Chovot HaVavot, Duties of the Heart, uh, which especially in the earlier part of the work has important philosophic uh, ideas and material. Uh, that's the part that's skipped usually, by the way, traditionally in yeshivas uh, in, in Europe for centuries. Uh, that's the uh, very strongly philosophical part. The first uh, shara in the Hatzama tradition in yeshivas, in literature yeshivas, was to skip that and start Chavos later material. Um, the, um, and eventually they came to the Guide of the Perplexed, a very difficult philosophic work, uh, work of religious philosophy written by the Rampa. Uh, so the Ibn Tibbin family specialized in philosophic translations, 
Uh, the Kimchi family specialized in uh, translations of philological uh, works, grammatical works. Uh, uh, they also popularized philosophic ideas in their commentaries. Uh, what you see, the common denominator here, is that all of these translators exhibit a great deal of zeal. It's a mission to them. They're on a mission. They come from what they uh, feel is a superior culture because they felt uh, this was the elite of, of, uh, of Europe. The Jews in Spain, with their, with their broad uh, scope and knowledge of different cultural disciplines and integrating them with the traditional Jewish disciplines and rabbinics, this to them made them the elite. Uh, that was the self-image. There's much to say about that. Uh, and when they came to southern France and they see Jews who don't know a word of the sciences or philosophy, I, they knew Talmud very well, I must say, because, you know, if you study one thing, if you're a Baal Achas, if you study one thing well or work on one thing all the time, you'll probably do it pretty, pretty well, better than the others. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, the Rambam was the first to say that the Jews of southern France really knew their Talmud. They knew no philosophy, but they knew their Talmud. Uh, but in, in any event, to, to the Tibbins, to Yehuda Ibn Tibbin, the father of the family, or to Yosef Kimchi, the father of that family, uh, they were coming from a superior legacy to Jews who were uh, somewhat backward. You can see this stated well in a will, an ethical will that was written by Yehuda, Yehuda Ibn Tibbin to his son Shmuel, Shmuel Ibn Tibbin. Uh, he writes to him sentences like the following. He says, seven years and more have passed since you began to learn Arabic writing, he says to his son, and Arabic literature, but despite my entreaties, you refuse to obey. You're not learning it, he says. Yet you are well aware how our foremost men only attain to high distinction through their proficiency in Arabic writing. That is, he says, look, you're in Provence, we're here in southern France as refugees, we're translating this material into Hebrew, but you know, if you really want to be a literate, uh, erudite person, you have to read all the material that was written in Arabic. And he's trying to get him to learn that. Uh, and he says that in another point in the will, I've journeyed far and wide to provide you teachers in the secular sciences because he couldn't find that in Provence. This will, as a, on the whole, is a very uh, illuminating document in terms of the transition from the Judeo-Arabic culture uh, to this new transplanting it into... Uh, Southern France, which was a monolithically uh, Talmudic culture, it, 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 it was the place in which uh, the Rizid grew up, uh, an uh, intensively Talmudic culture. Um, one aspect of this will, by the way, is that if you read it through, it's a very interesting uh, document, if you read it through, uh, every other page, this, this poor uh, child of his, Shmuel Ibn Tibbon, sounds like... Uh, uh, a lazy, impossible student. Uh, he, he criticizes him. I've tried to teach you, you know, learn. I've tried to... Uh, I have tutors, and I pay them a lot of money, and nothing happens from it. I have this enormous library, and you never read anything. And, uh, of course, in the end, it was Shmuel Ibn Tibbon, that uh, child, that son, who uh, really outdid his father. He was the one who translated the Maren Vuchim, the Guide of the Perplexed of the Rambam, the hardest, the most difficult uh, to translate uh, later on from Arabic into Hebrew, and he was an important philosophic writer in his own right. Uh, he wrote the uh, Kavu Hamayim and other works. So um, I'm sure that somewhere there uh, uh, lies some lessons, uh, either pedagogic lessons, or, or certainly there is hope for, for, for everyone, for us all, uh, after reading uh, this kind of a document and then seeing what happens afterwards. The, uh, now, uh, what happens after the... Uh, after all this uh, translation work, 
after the translation of all the classics of Jewish philosophy into Hebrew, the next step is the translation of the classic works of philosophy, that is, the works of Aristotle himself, from Arabic uh, into Hebrew. And that takes place throughout the 13th century in Provence, until finally, by the end of the 13th century, the process is remarkably complete. You have a whole body of uh, philosophic uh, works um, translated, preserved in very precise translation, because the Ibn Tibbins, uh, in particular, were mocked, they were very meticulous about precision to the point of, of being almost stilted or, or uh, in their translations. It's sometimes too formal, it's so precise. Uh, but, um, th but we have now a whole body of philosophic literature, uh, uh, the original Greek tradition and with Arabic commentary, the Jewish tradition of religious philosophy from Spain. All of this is made available for um, the Jews of Christian Europe who did not read Arabic. And now that means that continuation of the Judeo-Arabic philosophic tradition was possible in Europe without Arabic. Important development. Uh, and, and really important because uh, it shows you how important translation is in, uh, in intellectual history, by the way, just as an aside, uh, because there were works that did not get translated uh, through the centuries and had very little influence or truncated influence because of that. For example, uh, uh, works written in Greek by Jews, uh, Philo, Josephus. Uh, Jews in the Middle Ages didn't know it because it wasn't translated into Hebrew. They got it later. It wasn't until really the 16th century when Azaria de Rossi and others uh, living in the Renaissance and studying classical languages uh, translated this material. So in the meantime, uh, without this translation, it had a very limited effect and uh, influence on the Jews of uh, Christian Europe for centuries in the Middle Ages. So this was a, a vital development as Judeo-Arabic culture reached this critical uh, fork in the road. And, yeah. No, they weren't known in Christian Europe yet. It remained for Jews and Arabs together, Jews were very important in this uh, respect, to translate uh, from, um, uh, from Hebrew and Arabic into Latin. There were important Jewish translators like Colonimus and Colonimus and others who who were hired sometimes commissioned by the kings and nobles, and, and that made possible uh, the uh, continuation, it made possible the whole development of the famous uh, work of the schoolmen, the scholastic uh, theology, it wouldn't have been possible without the Jewish and, uh, and Muslim intermediaries uh, bringing this literature to them. Uh, now, what was the reaction to the fact that the uh, continuation of Judeo-Arabic culture was now possible in Christian Europe without Arabic? Uh, so, on the one hand, the reaction was, uh, indeed, continuance and further development of quite an impressive Jewish philosophic literature. There were some in uh, Provence who were uh, highly receptive to this. Uh, some of the leading rabbis, Rav Meshulam of Lunel, who's an important Rishon, uh, uh, he, he's the one who commissioned, uh, he suggested to Shmuel Ibn Tibbon to, to translate the Mar Nebuchan, a guy that perplexed. He was very interested in this material. On the other hand, uh, the other half of the reaction is the triggering of an anti-philosophic movement uh, against all of this literature. This opposition uh, begins already while the Rambam is still alive. Remember, uh, we've talked about the Rambam at length the last couple of meetings. He died in 1204. Uh, toward the end of his life, 
uh, people were already writing criticism on all aspects of his writing, halachic and uh, philosophic. And he himself noted, uh, he anticipated certain types of critics after he composed his Mishnah Torah, his monumental code, which included uh, quite a, uh, a significant philosophic material as well, especially in the beginning, Hilchot Yisodei Torah, and throughout the rest of the work. So the Rambam himself writes in a letter to his a beloved disciple for whom he dedicated the God of the Perplexed, Rav Yosef ben Yehuda, he writes to him in a, in a fascinating letter, here's just a few lines of it, that one of the people who is going to criticize him uh, for his work will be a uh, Hasid uh, Kofel Shmarav Sheyitkof Yisodeh HaEmunah HaKulimbo. He says there's going to be a uh, reactionary man of piety, uh, that type, um, who's going to uh, assail the uh, fundamental elements of principles of faith that I have included uh, in my work. He's not going to like the religious philosophy of it, uh, all the metaphysics, uh, the, uh, all the discussion about how to use uh, the sciences in order to prove the unity and incorporeality of God and the reasons for the commandments and all of that. He's not going to like this. A chassid kofel shmarav. The term, by the way, kofel shmarav, you may uh, recall is found in um, Stefania. Um, it's a little different there, Kofimo Shemrehem, I think, or something like that. But what it means is somebody who's very settled on the, something that's settled on the sediment. Uh, so it's, it's, this is, uh, in other words, uh, applied to human being, it's uh, somebody who's very conservative and reactionary and is not willing to listen to anything new. Um, so that's uh, the phrase that I'm using. Now, uh, in the post-Maimonidean period, uh, the controversy grows, and two major phases can be uh, distinguished in this controversy over the 13th and uh, into the 14th centuries. Uh, one, one phase ends in 1232, and here let me just bring to your attention, because there's no way I could do it in the time allotted tonight. I want to get to, as you'll see in a moment, three main questions to try to answer them uh, about this controversy. But if you want all the bibliographic details uh, about the heated polemic, who are the major players uh, throughout this controversy in places like southern France, uh, northern France, when they're brought into the picture, um, uh, Spain, the different parts of Spain, uh, people like uh, the Ramah Balafia or, or Shlomo Minahar, or, uh, many others are going to be involved, the Ramban, the different stages, the Rashba and the Rush and the... Um, uh, the Radak is going to be heavily involved. A great deal of heated polemics. Um, I, would, I would just suggest uh, in passing uh, uh, the standard works that have the details of it would be uh, Yitzhak Beer's uh, book, A History of the Jews in Christian Spain, uh, volume one and volume two. It's two volumes, part of the, but there are two phases to the controversy. So part of it is volume one and part of it is volume two. Uh, there's... Uh, uh, also, I, I should mention uh, uh, Beryl Septimus's book, um, um, Hispano-Jewish Culture in Transition, which is a biography of the Ramah Bulafia, which has an important chapter about the controversy. Uh, maybe the book by Daniel Jeremy Silver, A Maimonidean Criticism and Maimonidean Controversy. There are other works as well, uh, all important on the subject. Uh, but what I want to do now is uh, just mention... Uh, that there are two major phases to the controversy. One phase ends in 1232 with a climactic event, namely the burning, what apparently was, 
the burning of uh, some of the Rambam's work in public by the church in uh, 1232 in southern France. Uh, apparently it was the Moren of Uchin, the guy that perplexed, according to some sources, it might have been also the first book of the Mishnah Torah, the Sefer Hamada, which includes quite a bit of philosophic material. Uh, it's difficult to know what happened in 1232. Frankly, if you, if you weren't there, none of us were. It's very hard to know because this is one of those cases where all the sources are biased. Either it's a pro-philosophy source or it's an anti-philosophy source. They disagree uh, vehemently on certain aspects of what happened. And so this is a consensus of historians elicited from not too reliable uh, sources. But apparently what happened was that uh, uh, some of the anti-philosophy uh, groups among the Jews in southern France uh, allied themselves with uh, fellow Jews in northern France because the church in northern France at this time was repressing the study of Aristotle in the University of Paris and other places. There was a ban against the study of Aristotle in 1210, again in 1231, right before this. Uh, so according to some of the pro-philosophy sources we have, it was the anti-philosophic Jews in southern France who went to their, uh, to their new allies that they managed to garner in uh, northern France um, ask them to uh, request that the church step in because if they're uh, coming down hard on and banning Aristotle, well, the Rambam is citing Aristotle all the time. Uh, so why not uh, come down hard on that as well? And according to the sources, that's what led to the burning of the Rambam's work in uh, 1232. Apparently, this uh, shook everybody up at that point when they re realized to what extent uh, this... Uh, this had, uh, the extent to which this, this had reached the controversy where there was actually uh, the church had been brought in and the books had been burned so apparently there was uh, a lull uh, in the controversy after this event uh, in fact there, is, there are reports again it's hard to know how accurate they're mostly from the pro-philosophic uh, groups but there are reports that uh, after this happened uh, even one of the leading opponents of a, a Jewish philosophic study, that is Rabbeinu Yonah, Rabbi Yonah uh, Garonzi, uh, according to these reports, uh, uh, he, when he saw ten years later, in 1242, that the Talmud was burned, you recall that this, uh, we have a whole keen on Tishabov, Shalisu Fadeesh over this, that in Paris, uh, many wagon loads, thousands of manuscript copies of uh, Talmud were burned publicly in Paris by the uh, the church. Uh, so according to these reports, Rabbi Yona took it as divine retribution, Mida Keneged Nida, that the Jews themselves had instigated the burning of the Rambam's work, and now uh, you have the burning of the Talmud. Uh, so according to this report, he resolved to set on a uh, pilgrimage of uh, Tshuva to the Rambam's uh, Kever in Severia. Um, anyway, according to those reports, that would... Uh, uh, this would fit in with our understanding of a lull in the controversy after things had reached that climax. But the controversy continued to fester because the issues were not resolved. We'll come to the issues in, in a few moments. Uh, and what happened uh, in the second stage of the controversy, uh, which I have here somewhere, a second stage culminated in another dramatic event, and that is the ban, a cherem, that was uh, issued in the year 1305 uh, in Barcelona and signed by a number of people, uh, uh, seven if I remember correctly, but the, uh, the leading rabbinic scholar uh, 
uh, who signed it was the Rashbam, Rav Shlomo Ben Adret, uh, the leading halakhic authority in Spain, in Barcelona, in the beginning of the uh, 14th century. Uh, so this ban was issued a cherem against the state philosophy in 1305. That seems to be the culmination of the second major phase of this controversy. Uh, uh, and um, I want to uh, read a little bit of this ban to you before we get into three questions that I'm about to ask. The questions, so you can anticipate them, uh, will be uh, putting all this material together, this background together. Uh, what caused uh, the eruption of this controversy and all the heated polemic uh, when it occurred and where it occurred? That is, in Provence in the end of the 12th century. Uh, once it did erupt, what were the major issues that recur in the polemics back and forth? Uh, what were the fundamental uh, issues contested in the controversy? And third, what was the effect, if any, of this ban? Did the ban, the cherem against the study of philosophy by Jews uh, resolve things in 1305 uh, or not? And I think the ban has been uh, quite misunderstood in that regard. We'll come back to it. But first, let me tell you what kind of a ban we're dealing with. Let's just explore it for a moment before we uh, later come back to it. The ban says toward the end of it, it's recorded in the Chuvas, the uh, response of the Rashba. Uh, Therefore, we have decreed and accepted for ourselves and our children and for all those joining us that on the thread of the cherem, of the ban, no, no one in our community, unless he be 25 years old, shall study, either in the original language or in translation, the books which the Greeks have written on religious philosophy and the natural sciences. It is also forbidden for any member of our community to teach any Jew under 25 years of age any of these sciences. Then it goes on to exclude medicine from this because uh, even though it's one of the natural sciences, the Torah commands uh, healing. Uh, and uh, the, it ends over the scroll of the law and in the presence of the whole community, we have agreed on this Shabbat of the portion, uh, these are the words, Eilah Varim, in the year 5065, that was July 31st, 1305, to ban these things, and you have the Rashba and others who signed it. Now, just before we go further and answer the three questions that I set up, uh, what do you say about this ban? Strong ban? Has a lot of teeth? Or? Yeah. No, it's a very practical one. I mean, you hear that nowadays. Okay, so it's weak in terms of, because of the way it's worded? Ah, okay. So the age is important here. Indeed, uh, uh, if, if, it's, if you can't study this unless you're 25 years old, then the only way to understand if this is strong or weak is to take a look at the curricula of the period. What, when, what did people study when in the 13th century, in the 14th century? And if you look, what you'll find is, and we have some curricula, especially those that are collected in, in a very fine uh, collection by Simcha Asaf, uh, Mikarot letodot hachinuch Yisrael, and uh, there you see indeed that nobody was studying uh, metaphysics before age 25. There was a graded um, curriculum. Uh, you had to study Torah, you had to study halacha, you had to study logic and math with propedeutic sciences. There were preliminary sciences before you could get to natural sciences. As the Brahman says in the Marnavuch in part one, you have to do it in order. And uh, you didn't get to uh, the types of uh, sciences that, have, that when used, when applied to religious thought might be uh, in the eyes of some uh, dangerous or problematic or whatever. You didn't get to that until at least age 25. So it sounds like uh, this is watered down a bit and uh, what the Cherem is trying to do, if anything, at this point in time, is it just to uh, simply retain the status quo. 
to make sure that things don't get worse. There's a second uh, element of this uh, formulation that should be noted. There. Ah, okay, so let me get to that in a moment. Uh, the, the, uh, if you look at the language here, uh, it says that what is banned, either in the original language or in translation, are the books that the Greeks have written on religious philosophy and the natural sciences. So it's excluded from this cherem, and you again see how watered down it is, are all the books of Jewish philosophy. There's no mention of Jewish philosophy. Uh, suddenly they're all okay, even though they were really the points of contention uh, throughout this period. Uh, but at least you don't read the Greeks. In fact, uh, not only is the Rambam excluded, but according to another version of the span that's found in uh, Beer, um, the Rambam is praised. Uh, he's singled out that his works are Zahav, they're like gold, uh, not like others maybe, uh, and uh, they're, they're in a category uh, by themselves. That reflects something else that we don't have time to get to tonight, and that is uh, what's been called the heroic image of the Rambam uh, by the beginning of the 14th century, when he had a particularly... Um, uh, a, a particular claim on authority in the Jewish community. And anyone who wanted either to uh, be pro-philosophy or anti-philosophy would try to draft the Rambam in support of his position. Uh, so it's not unusual to find those who are pro-philosophy to say, we're Maimonideans, we're following the Rambam. Those are anti-philosophy say, we're doing, uh, uh, we're against those who, who distort the Rambam. Uh, because we're doing exactly uh, what the Rambam would do. He would protest against the way philosophy is being used today. In other words, no one wants to take the Rambam on uh, directly. Um, and that has something to do with, somebody asked me two weeks ago, two weeks ago last week, I don't remember, um, about uh, the Rambam in Kabbalah. I once wrote on this that uh, uh, there was this uh, legend about, uh, it appears in the beginning of the 14th century and later as well, uh, about uh, the Rambam... Uh, meeting a Kabbalist at the end of his life and regretting uh, everything he wrote uh, on philosophy prior to that. So this, um, this is used, uh, I know, by one Makobo by the name of Yosef Ibn Shoshan in his uh, commentary on Avot. Uh, he uses it to attack the Rambam uh, uh, sharply on almost every page of this book. Uh, but he says at one point that uh, he would never dream of saying anything against the Rambam, who's, who, uh, who is the Nesher Agadol, the great ego, and I'm, he says, like a little Yitush, I'm a, I'm a mosquito. Uh, how, could I, uh, uh, how could I attack him? But I, there's this letter, and according to this letter, uh, he regretted uh, things that he wrote during his life. So I'm just uh, taking out things that maybe are the things that he regretted uh, toward the end of his life. This is, I think, a good example in the same century, beginning of the 14th century, same time exactly as the Tzcherem about the authority of the Rambam. So the Rambam is excluded from all this. He's on everybody claims him, which is the, what happened in the century subsequent to that as well, and to this day everybody's claiming uh, Yeah, and one more uh, question, then I'll try to move ahead. I just want to answer those three questions that we finally posed. Go ahead. Yeah, but go ahead. Thank you. Um, well... Uh, it's a good question because the, the books that the Greeks that have written, uh, um, you can make it, it depends how it's interpreted. It could be interpreted by some to uh, exclude those uh, treatises of Aristotle with commentary. So if you have a commentary by Avicenna or whoever it is, 
maybe that would be looked at, discouraged in the, in the context of this. On the other hand, there are Jewish commentaries on those books as well. Uh, that, that, would, that would be in the more problematic category as opposed to an original work of uh, uh, religious uh, philosophy written by a Jew uh, or, or a Muslim. Uh, okay, so with all this background, I think we're ready, uh, if we tie together some of this background, we're ready to consider the questions that we pose. Uh, first, uh, what caused the eruption of the controversy at this particular time, this particular place, namely the end of the 12th century in southern France, Provence, and, um, and then later throughout the 13th century? And I think that a simple and likely explanation in view of uh, what I set up for you, the background, is that through the Hebrew translation and popularization, uh, philosophy, all the disciplines of philosophy were being introduced in large doses, all at once, among people who had no previous knowledge of philosophy, people who were not perplexed. I'm using that word because uh, the Rambam, when he wrote the Guide of the Perplexed, uh, meant something very specific by the term perplexed. He explains it in his introduction. It's not what uh, Bertrand Russell thinks it is. For example, if you've read the Critical History of Western Philosophy uh, in some philosophy course by uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, so uh, he says the, the Rambam wrote the guy that perplexed, my money's with the guy that perplexed for philosophers who had lost their faith. The Rambam would disagree entirely with that. In fact, he doesn't say that. He said, if you read the uh, introduction, which I doubt that Russell read, frankly, because Russell has very little uh, appreciation of Jewish uh, philosophical writings, barely mentions it. But if you look at the Rambam's introduction to the guy, he says, it is not the purpose of this treatise to make its totality understandable to beginners in speculation, nor to those who have not engaged in any study other than the science of the law. In other words, this is not for people who, who are uh, beginners in uh, philosophy. They haven't studied it uh, well. They're not proficient in the, in the sciences. It's not for people who only studied halacha and haven't studied anything else. Rather, its purpose is to give indications to a religious man for whom the validity of our law has become established in his soul and has become actual in his belief, such a man being perfect in his religion and character and having studied the sciences of the philosophers and come to know what they signify. Who is he writing for? He's writing for somebody who is proficient, somebody who has mastered both halacha and the philosophic tradition, both, reason and, uh, both faith and reason. A revelation and reason. So, if you're perplexed uh, in the Rambam's uh, lexicon, that means you've reached a noble state. You have to really work hard to reach the level of being perplexed because only if you are proficient in both traditions will you have certain issues that have to be resolved. And the Rambam is addressing those issues in the Maren of uh, Now, these people in southern France are not perplexed in that sense, because they're proficient only in one discipline, that is halacha and Talmud, but not in philosophy. They never studied philosophy. So all of this material is being thrust on, uh, on a mass of people who on the whole, you might say, had no pressing need for it, because they were not perplexed. And um, uh, you can begin to understand the reaction, therefore. Uh, but let me give you an example from this period, written right at this time, that will uh, illustrate this point and will illustrate why this reaction uh, was to be expected. It's, uh, the example is from something the Rambam wrote 
and a sharp critique against it by the Ravid, Rav Avram ben David, uh, who was living in Provence right at this time, uh, in the second half of the 12th century. He was brought up himself and educated in a more monolithically Talmudic uh, culture, the one we described earlier, very different from Judeo Arabic culture, but he was right there on the spot when all of this material is being translated and transmitted. Okay? So, here's what, uh, and what he says in this uh, comment is emblematic of the attitude, I think, of those who were opposing, uh, who reacted negatively to the influx of uh, this philosophic literature to, to uh, Ashkenaz, to southern France in this case. Uh, the Rambam, what happens here, I'll try to say it briefly, uh, the Rambam brings up a uh, difficult theological question, to say the least. Uh, it's divine foreknowledge versus uh, human free will, and it appears in Hilchot Shuvah Perak The Rambam says, and remember, the Mishnah, this is the Mishnah Torah. It's the Mishnah Torah that's not the Maran of Hashem. And this, I think, irked the rising. Uh, it's written in a book that's intended to be accessible to all. Okay? This makes it even more of a problem, what he's about to address. So the Rambam says, Shema Tamar, if you want to ask the question, Hashem knows everything. If, he has, if he's omniscient and has absolute um, uh, knowledge, including foreknowledge of future events, then Then he knows what's going to happen. And before it happens, he knows Russia, that Reuven is going to be a Tzadik or going to be a Russia. He knows in advance. So, so you have a dilemma, a problem. If God knows that this person is going to be a righteous person, it's impossible for the person not to be righteous because, the per- because uh, God already has foreknowledge of this occurrence. The person has to be what the foreknowledge indicates. Or maybe you could say, Maybe that God has foreknowledge that, this, that Reuven will be a tzaddik, but it's still possible that Reuven will be a Russia because he has free will. Then, then God didn't really know, did he, uh, what this person would be. That's not really foreknowledge. Uh, so this is a dilemma. Sajah is an old problem, an old question. Um, the Rambam did not like any of the old answers. The old classical answers, which are still uh, often um, uh, discussed, uh, Rasaja, for example, Halevi, uh, the Ravid here, uh, the usual answer centers around uh, the idea that knowledge is not causative. That is, if you know something, it doesn't mean you cause it to happen. Uh, and so you don't necessarily have a uh, contradiction between knowing something and human free will. Um, uh, because that's the essence of this problem. The problem is how can a human being have free will if God knows in advance what the person's going to do and what he's going to be? Then you, do, then you don't have free will. What do you? Uh, so, uh, if you could say that knowledge is, uh, is not causative. That's what Rasaja suggests. Uh, in other words, to give you a rather mundane example, uh, if, uh, if I work next to somebody in the bank uh, as a teller and uh, at 12 o'clock every Friday, uh, the person working next to me uh, in the bank uh, goes uh, uh, immediately, the first thing, um, gets, gets, uh, gets his check and deposits it, or cashes it, let's say cashes it. Uh, that may happen week after week after week, and I may know that given Friday, I may know at 11.35 uh, uh, that at 12 o'clock, the person next to me is going to cash his check. And it turns out I'm absolutely right. The person indeed cashed the check at 12 o'clock. 
Uh, did I cause that person to, ca to cash the check? No, I had nothing to do with it. But I did know it in advance without affecting or impacting that person's free will in any way whatsoever. Um, or I could say, if I see two trains coming in the distance, unfortunately one train coming this way, the other coming that way on the same track, and they're both going at full speed. I may know what's about to happen uh, two seconds later, but did I cause it? No, not at all. So I think what the Rama doesn't like about this whole principle is, uh, obviously I think it's something about to say it, uh, it, it's still not divine foreknowledge. I mean, what all of the, the at least the cases I gave, maybe you could formulate a better uh, example, but uh, in the cases that I uh, proposed here, uh, uh, your knowledge is not really definite knowledge into the future. It's knowledge based on past experience and probability. In the first case, past experience. In the second case, probability. It could be that in one particular uh, instance, this will not happen for whatever reason. Uh, and um, so the Rambam suggests something else. The Rambam suggests that there is a qualitative distinction, and I'll get in a moment to my point. I, I should get to it soon. Uh, the Rambam suggests that there's a qualitative distinction to be drawn between human knowledge and divine knowledge. They're not the same thing. It's not as if God knows a hundred things and we know twenty things. Uh, it's not a quantitative distinction. It's a qualitative distinction. The way God knows is totally different from the way human beings know. We know something that was outside of our minds, we acquire that knowledge, and then our knowledge improves as a basis, uh, as a result of that. But as far as God's knowledge, that works totally differently. God can't acquire knowledge that he didn't have before. He doesn't have better knowledge today than he had yesterday, because it wouldn't be a perfect God otherwise. So it must be that, how the Rambam suffering, it must be that the whole process of knowing in God works differently. And uh, as a result, when we use the term knowledge with regard to God, it's, we use it only as a, in a, a homonym type sense uh, with regard to uh, human knowledge because the two are absolutely different uh, conceptions. So if you say this, then you could say, and then the Brahman goes on to say, therefore, uh, we don't know how it works. Uh, so we can't say anything about this. Lo from and therefore, you're, what you have to do is simply affirm both truths as true, because you know them to be true, both from reason and, and from revelation. Both teach you that human beings have free will, and that God is uh, uh, omniscient by definition. So we affirm both. So the Ravid, uh jumps at this. The Ravid is very upset at this. Um, you see, and the Ravid assumes... There, there are two ways to interpret what the Rambam just said. You could, and the Ravid assumes one of them. You could say that the Rambam just said that uh, there really is no answer to the question as posed. If you say, you know, there's God's foreknowledge on the one hand, there's human free will on the other hand, but if God knows everything in advance, how do human beings have free will? And you could say there's no real answer, but there's no real question either. We don't have enough data to ask the question. We don't know how God's knowledge works. So, then, so what can we do with it? So you're, you're left with what Kant uh, might call an antinomy. That is, when you have proposition A and proposition B, you, uh, you can prove both to be correct, but then they contradict. And, you, and human knowledge is finite and can't go any further to figure out uh, how to resolve that. So you simply have to affirm both proposition A and proposition B. So you could say that. Or you could say that, no, the Rambam did answer the question. By drawing a qualitative distinction between human reason and divine, uh, human knowledge and divine knowledge, uh, so uh, what he did was uh, he, he said uh, that he, he, he's actually giving us an answer. 
he's telling us that just as God is outside of space, we have that concept certainly. If you took away the world, you'd still have God. He's outside of space. People can live with that concept. Uh, so too, God is outside of time. Perhaps, God, perhaps the Rambam is telling us that the distinction, the qualitative distinction between the two types of knowledge is that God's uh, knowledge is not dependent on time. It doesn't work the same way. He doesn't know something now that he didn't know before. It's outside of the framework of time, God's knowledge. And if it's outside the framework of time, then we might say, and actually uh, Rav Bachi Ben Asher has it, Rav Ben Bachaya in his, uh, in his uh, parish on the, on the Pasuk HaShem Yimlach Yilam Ve'ed in B'Shalach, that God's knowledge is, is uh, always in the present. Uh, he knows things in some kind of eternal present because it's outside of time. How, what does it mean to be outside of time? I don't know. None of us can possibly know because uh, our knowledge is in time. So we can't operate outside time, but God is qualitatively different in that regard. Uh, so if knowledge is outside time, perhaps his knowledge is in the present. There is no contradiction between knowing something in the present and human free will. Nobody, well, no one ever suggested there was. Uh, so, so he's answered the question. So either the Rambam said there's no answer, but there's no question, or he said there is an answer. Uh, no. So the Ravid thinks the former is true, that the Rambam said there's no answer. And listen to the Ravid's comment. There's no answer, but you have to affirm both, because we don't have enough data to know anymore. Both are true according to both reason and revelation. Therefore, we accept both principles. Amr Avram says the Ravid, Lo nahag this author did not act here like a wise author. Because you don't start something if you don't know how to finish it. And he started with difficult questions here. What did he do? Says the writer. He left it as a question. See how he interprets the Rambam. And he left it to the realm, uh, like Constantinople, to the realm of belief. You simply have to affirm both. V'tovah yalo, so, so where did he get it? V'tovah yalo, it would have been better, l'haniach ha-davar b'tzmimut ha-tzmimim, leave the pious people who are reading this in southern France, remember who's speaking where, in southern France, leave them in their piety that they were in before they read this, they believed both perfectly and absolutely before they read this paragraph, v'lo ye'orer libam v'yaniach ta-tam b'tzafek, and not to arouse uh, doubts, and maybe for a moment they'll actually doubt something. Who wants that? And then you tell them to affirm it. Uh, what have you accomplished? I think the, the Ravid's comment is emblematic of the attitude of some groups in Provence at this time. As this uh, philosophic literature is being thrust on the masses who are not perplexed, so some are saying, uh, leave it to me, to me, mim, but to me, mutam. Why do you have to arouse Seikot for people who were, were not proficient in philosophy and didn't even have these Seikot? And then what, how good are the answers uh, that you have? Because the, the, well, it comes to why the Rambam would say you, it's very important indeed to raise these questions. But, um, but I have to finish. I'm going to move on. Uh, the, if in, whatever the underlying reason was for the eruption of the controversy in Provence at the end of the 12th century, and I think this helps this is the background for it, uh, certainly we can point to specific themes that recur in the debate in subsequent centuries, that recur in the charges of the opposition. There are a number of themes, I'll mention a few briefly, and then I'll uh, uh, focus on what I think is the, uh, is the most fundamental theme. Uh, there, were those who, uh, there were those who were upset by the philosopher's use of allegory. What do I mean by allegory? 
That is, uh, we mentioned last time that philosophers assumed that there are uh, two authoritative, uh, that religious philosophers in the Middle Ages assumed that there are two authoritative bodies of truth. Uh, that which is contained in Revelation and that which is contained in the, in the truths of the philosophic tradition. And therefore, there can be no contradiction between the truths of both because they both emanate from one author, from God, who is the author of Revelation and the author of reason. So there can't be any contradiction. So what if there is a contradiction? So if, uh, or an apparent contradiction? So what you have to do is you have to go back to the same thing you do if you had a contradiction within the realm of reason alone. That is, you go back and you re-examine your sources. You say to yourself, maybe I... I didn't uh, 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 read these sources correctly. Maybe I didn't infer correctly. So if you have an apparent contradiction, for example, between uh, creation, Aristotle says the world is uh, eternal, not created. The Torah says the world is created. So the Rambam will say in this case, in re-examining our sources, uh, we can resolve this apparent contradiction and show that it is only apparent and not real by uh, indeed disproving Aristotle's proofs. It turns out that all of his proofs are... Uh, or without merit, uh, and therefore there is no compelling reason to accept anything other than the Torah's uh, 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 presentation of creation. Uh, you can go the other way as well. In the case of anthropomorphism, for example, when you attribute human characteristics to God. So you have a pasuk that tells you Yad Hashem, the hand of God, the mighty hand, Yad HaChazakah of God, uh, and uh, the philosophic tradition will tell you that God cannot have a hand because God doesn't have a physical faculty, otherwise it wouldn't be God. According to Aristotle, any physical faculty is subject to motion. Anything that's subject to motion is subject to generation and corruption, Havayavah said, coming into being and going out of being. Uh, therefore, God cannot have a physical faculty, otherwise he'd be subject to coming into being and going out of being. So, Rambam accepts that 100%, that philosophic principle of Aristotle. Therefore, God cannot have a physical faculty. So what do you do with the Pasuk Agadashem? So in this, this is where allegory comes in. So the Rambam will tell you there can be only one truth. There can't be a contradiction uh, between the truth of reason and the truth of revelation. Therefore, you have to go back and re-examine uh, one of your sources. In this case, not, the, not philosophy, but scripture. Go back and examine the Pasuk. Perhaps that you didn't read the Pasuk right. And indeed, he says, Chazal tell us, sometimes the Torah will speak figuratively, uh, allegorically. Uh, by allegory here we mean using a concrete term to express an abstract idea. And uh, indeed, Yad Hashem is a concrete term to express the abstract idea of God's uh, omnipotence. And, um, and once you realize that, uh, you interpret it properly by using an allegory. So there was some, throughout the controversy in, in the 13th century into the 14th century and beyond, uh, there were those who claimed that the philosophers used allegory much too, um, uh, uh, much too frequently and, uh, and, and to an extreme. Uh, that uh, they're beginning to, uh, to find allegory everywhere, uh, which is okay because Torah Tashem Tamim. The principle is that since the Torah is perfect, then any philosophic truth is found there somewhere. So you simply have to draw out for, uh, in any given pasuk the philosophic dimension of that pasuk not only in order to resolve contradictions, but in order to find philosophic truths all over the place. So there were philosophic commentaries written throughout the, the centuries uh, by uh, uh, post-Maimonidean authors who found, uh, for example, the five kings against, uh, against the four kings in Lefaka. So they, they, you can find this. You have um, interpretations that the five kings stand for the 
five senses and the, and the four kings for the four bodily humors and the war is the relationship between the, the bodily humors and the, and the senses and how they relate to each other. Or Avram and Sarah, Avram is form and Sarah is matter and the relationships between them, if you follow them through, Bereshit are in fact uh, the relationships that you have recorded through our, the Aristotelian tradition of how form and matter relate with each other. So that's fine and good if you're a, a philosopher, uh, but what uh, the complaint that was voiced again and again is that these philosophers are going too far. They're denying the historicity of the counts, the literal meaning of the pasuk. They're saying everything is an allegory. If it's all an allegory, there's no Avram, there's no Sarah. Uh, after a while, there's no... Uh, uh, they're denying the, the, uh, the literal account. Now, this is an interesting charge, which appears again and again, because we, it has no corroboration. We have nothing from any philosophic author, no commentary, that says this is the meaning, the allegorical meaning, and we deny the pshat with regard to something like Avram and Sarah, uh, uh, or the four kings, or the five kings, or whatever it is. Everybody goes out of their way, in fact, to say that indeed there's the pshat, and there is also another philosophic dimension of interpretation. That's also true. In fact, in the ban of 1305, one of the people singled out for uh, blame is uh, Levi uh, Ben Chaim, uh, and uh, for going too far with his exegesis. But Avram Halkin once published an article using manuscripts, manuscript material that we have of, uh, of Levi Ben Chaim, which insists that, uh, that, there, that you still hold on to Bashan. You don't discard the Bashan. That's what he says in his manuscript. So he wrote an article, Halkin, and the title of the article is Why Was Levi Ben Chaim Hounded? That's the uh, title of the article. He doesn't understand. So uh, it could, what I think, without knowing what Rabbanim said in Drusha, you see, what we don't know is what people said on Shabbos in Drusha. Maybe people went too far in oral uh, sermons, uh, and that, got, that aroused the ire of anti-philosophers. That we don't know. But it could be that uh, the anti-philosophic camp was, was apprehensive about how far this all could go. Not that it had reached that point yet, I think they were apprehensive about the next step. The next step is denying the pshat, which is what is done in Christian exegesis. Uh, so uh, I think they were afraid of where it was going. Could be. Uh, the, uh, another issue, and we'll come to the fundamental issue in a moment. Some people argued simply that philosophy was a waste of time. Uh, one should concentrate all one's time on the study of Talmud because after all, the bottom line is performing the will of God, Ritzon Hashem. And how do we know the will of God? It's through halacha by studying the legal parts of Halacha and the Talmud. I, I can, can imagine the rush whom, with whom we started. Blessed be God who spared me any knowledge of philosophy. I quoted him to start this evening. Why did he say that? He probably would fit into this category. It would be a waste of time to study philosophy when you could use it better. Not to, not to uh, mention the fact that it could be dangerous as well. Uh, another issue, the Rambam himself and certainly later followers of the Rambam were accused of denying uh, resurrection of the dead. The principle of Chiyata Metim. In the case of the Rambam, uh, this was, uh, I think, a misunderstanding of the Rambam, uh, but the misunderstanding related uh, to uh, his philosophic method. That is, the Rambam, um, there, there were two primary view, there was the primary uh, view of how Triata uh, makes him work, the time of the Rambam, uh, was that the Mashiach would come, uh, Yamatha Mashiach would begin, all sorts of supernatural changes would t- take place. The Mashiach would resurrect the dead, those who deserve to be resurrected, and they would live on forever uh, in a new world. That's Olam Haba. 
uh, the new world, uh, a more spiritual world, but it's a world in which body and soul come together and live eternally on this earth in a more supernatural uh, type of existence. Uh, until then, you have Ganet and other rewards, but the ultimate reward is later, after the end of historical time. Uh, that, uh, coming against that, the Rambam suggested, no, that Olam Haba is not the, uh, something coming later at the end of historical time, uh, but rather it's an ahistorical um, context, uh, existence, uh, which is achieved by anybody who deserves it, whose soul deserves it after death. If your soul deserves it, it's meritorious enough, then you live, your soul lives on immortally, eternally, uh, 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 getting, uh, uh, delighting in the divine presence, forevermore. And uh, that's after death, and that's the ultimate reward, and that's incorporeal. There is no body attached to that. Yemot HaMashiach will be, uh, at some point, uh, allowing, uh, uh, not sup- uh, uh, creating not supernatural changes according to the Rambam. He takes the view that the only change, as the Amor Shmuel says, is Shibud Malchiyot. There's no subjugation of, of Israel and therefore everybody can finally live and concentrate on doing mitzvot and studying Torah and Chachma to the point where it's easier for everyone to individually achieve Olam Haba. It makes conditions more conducive to achieve what everybody's trying to achieve all, all along the way and that is Olam Haba. Uh, and Tchiyat Meitim will happen before, during, or after Yimalta Mashiach, according to the Rambam. Whenever God wills it, he has nothing much to say about it because it's a nace. It's, it's the only example we have of a supernatural nace to be promised later in the future. There's not much he can say about it, except that uh, apparently it will give uh, uh, some people a chance to better them, their, uh, their, self, their, their, uh, their status of their souls uh, before they go back to Olam Haba. Uh, in any case, uh, now you can understand why, the Ram, why this was an issue. When the Rambam says, therefore, in the Mishnah Torah, Olam Haba, in Bogof, there is no uh, body in Olam Haba. That makes sense according to the Rambam. Because according to the Rambam, uh, the Olam Haba is the immortal existence of the incorporeal soul. But the Ravid jumps on him because the Ravid understands the, the other view, uh, that Olam Haba is body and soul living on eternally at the end of uh, historical time. So if he now reads in front of him a text that says Olam Haba Inbo Olam Haba has no guf, it sounds like he just denied Tzviyatamitim. And indeed, that's what the writer says, it sounds like he just denied Tzviyatamitim. So there's a lot of misunderstanding here. But I would suggest to you that the real issue, and I'll try to finish this very quickly now, uh, what really was at issue uh, throughout this, these centuries was something much more fundamental than allegory, Tzviyatamitim, the Tzviyatamitim controversy, or Beatlesman. What was at issue the whole time uh, was the basic question of whether religion should be intellectualized through the use of philosophic and rational inquiry or not. Uh, what the philosophic camp insisted uh, upon, and this we saw last week, this is just a continuation of uh, the Rambam's uh, writing in, the, in the Mishnah Torah, we saw in Hachot Yisari Torah, when he talked about Dover Gadol, Dover Kata. According to the Rambam, the highest madrega, the highest level to which one could aspire religiously is not only observing mitzvah and, uh, and studying uh, halacha and talmud, but beyond that, then, uh, that's the Dover Gadol, then uh, trying to be a religious philosopher on the highest level, trying to understand the nature of God using the scientific and philosophic tradition, trying to, under- 
to prove the existence of God, to demonstrate the incorporeality and unity of God, uh, reasons for the commandments, all to understand natural law in relation to miracles, all of this, um, uh, ethics in relation to halakha. Uh, if you do this, says the Rambam, then you're on the highest possible level. He says not only in the Mishnah Torah, but he also says it in the uh, Guide of the Perplexed, in the famous palace metaphor. In part 3, chapter 51 of the Guide, the Rambam sets up uh, the image of a king in his palace. Uh, that's God, the Kaddish Baruch uh, and various groups of subjects are trying to enter the king's palace, but each group only gets up to a certain point depending on that group's achievement. Obviously, there's a hierarchy of achievement being uh, created here. Um, and uh, the Rambam, uh, gets, at, at certain points, talks about Amehara uh, to observe commandments, that is, people who observe but don't know why they're doing it and don't know how to study either halacha or uh, principles of, uh, of a Jewish philosophy. Uh, so, but they do, the, they observe the commandments. So they seek to reach the ruler's palace, but have trouble seeing it. They're ahead of some other groups, but they're, they're, they're not here. The other groups I'm not bothering with tonight. Ahead of these Amiharis are Talmudists, people who do study halacha, as well as perform halacha, but they don't, they do not philosophically inquire into the demonstration of the fundamentals of their religion. They're not religious philosophers. They come up to the palace and they walk around it, seeking to enter. But only, says the Rambam, only he who has progressed beyond the mastery of the law, because that's indispensable and that's prior, but only he who has progressed beyond that to metaphysical speculation, to rational demonstration of religious principles, only that person can enter into the king's chamber and be with the king in the palace. Now, not everyone would agree with this position. We saw that last week. We saw how... Uh, uh, the Ritva says, May God atone for the Rambam's position uh, when he said it in the Mishnah Torah. He says it again here. It's the same position. It's consistent, and that's significant too. It's consistent in both his halachic work and his philosophic work. It's the same position. And, and uh, you get the same response here. If you look at the commentary of Shemto ben Yosef ibn Shemto, who wrote a commentary that appears on the standard pages of the Guy the Perplexed. He lived in the end of the 15th century. And he was a Maimonidean. But he mentioned uh, that there are those who, uh, contemporaries of his, he says, in the 15th century, who questioned whether the Rambam really wrote this chapter. And if he did, uh, then it should be nignaz, it should be hidden away, or better yet, burned. That's what uh, he says, according to many of his contemporaries. This is a reaction because the implication is that Talmud's study and observance of mitzvot is not enough to achieve the very highest level of religious perfection. That's a, and people disagree with that assertion. Uh, the, the other end of the spectrum, i finish quickly, is Rabbi Yehuda Levi. Uh, he represents, chronologically prior to the Rambam, would, would represent the other extreme. That is, those who argue the exact opposite. That the person who, um, who has an unphilosophically examined faith, but has a complete certainty of faith and an, and an absolute natural piety, that person is on the highest religious madrega. That person doesn't need philosophy, because that person's certainty of faith is so absolute, and the relationship with God is so uh, uh, clear. Uh, Halevi says this at the end uh, of part uh, 2, paragraph 26 of the Kuzari, talking about the reasons for sacrifices. So he gives some reasons, and then he says at the end, I do not, God forbid, assert, he, he says, I don't assert that my reasons are correct, the reasons are more obscure and loftier, it is commanded by God. And he who accepts it with all his heart, without scrutiny or scruple, is superior to the man who scrutinizes and investigates. 
So notice how Levi also has a hierarchy, just like the Rambam does. But it's a hierarchy going in the opposite direction. You have uh, the person on top is the person who has absolute certainty in the commands of God without having to philosophically investigate. He doesn't have to uh, prove that God exists because he knows that God exists. The person on the level below is the person who descends to the lower level of proving and demonstrating that God exists. Can you do that? Yes, says Halevi, because he's a medieval philosopher. And medieval religious philosophers believe that there is congruence between reason and revelation. So yes, you can prove it. But you're on a lower level if you do it. I'd like to, um, to say, uh, to bring the example sometimes when you talk about this, um, the story about uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the existentialist, 19th century existentialist, who, um, who uh, once, according to the story, uh, was once being told about St. Anselm. St. Anselm uh, in the 11th century was the one who, uh, who devised an argument for the existence of God called the ontological argument. It's just a few lines long, but we don't have time for it. Uh, it's a logical argument that has, uh, is still being debated. Uh, Hegel, Kant, uh, Russell, everybody wrote about this trying to disprove it. But it is, it's a logical argument that God must exist. Uh, and um, so the story is that uh, prior to composing his ontological argument, Anselm first went into church and knelt in prayer asking for, you know, that he should have success in this enterprise. Uh, so Kierkegaard, according to the story, when he heard this, he said, what a fool Anselm was. Uh, here he was in the very embrace of God. He was in ch- prayer, kneeling in prayer with God. And then he goes out to prove that God exists. He couldn't understand this. Uh, he, for, in terms of what we just said in Halevi, that's exactly the same um, descent from the highest level to a lower level. There he was on the highest level, and he descended by going and trying to prove that God exists. He left the embrace of God. There are other views in between. I don't have time for Asaj's view, which is something like uh, different strokes for different fo- folks. You have, uh, so some people, religious shleimot will indeed be by way of uh, philosophic demonstration, for others not. Uh, and he has some interesting, uh, mostly arithmetical uh, ways of proving that, but I won't spend time on that. I just want to... Uh, to mention that it is this, I believe, is the fundamental issue that runs throughout the controversy. Through, uh, you can, they can talk about anything else, but they always come back to this. Uh, the issue is, who is the religiously superior Jew? And that's going to run through this, not only in the 13th century, not only in the 14th century, but afterward as well, which leads us finally to the end of the last question, uh, the effect of the ban. The ban didn't, uh, the controversy didn't end. Controversy has never ended. Controversy is still with us today. All you have to do is, is look at the controversy over curricula in Jewish schools or in, in Jewish colleges or day schools or high schools. It's the same controversy. How do you educate a religiously superior Jew? Then what are you supposed to be teaching them? It's still there. Various movements in Jewish history are, have their genesis in the same controversy. It didn't end there, um, and that's misunderstood. Some people think that in 1305, with the ban, everything, uh, there was no more interest in philosophy. That was it for philosophy on the Jewish scene. I remember reading that in the, there's a textbook of Weston Siv that's often used as a college textbook by Brian Tierney of Cornell. He says that uh, Jews, um, after the controversy and the ban, Jews retreated into a cocoon of Talmudic erudition. But that's not what happened. He's ignoring, first of all, the fact that in 1306, the Jews were expelled from Provence. I mean, that had an effect on the continuance of the controversy, and uh, a, year, a year after the ban. And not only then, but um, 
if you look at the people who claim, what is their proof that philosophy sort of petered out afterwards? It wasn't an issue anymore. The fact that you find relatively few gedolim in philosophy. You find the Ralbag and you find the uh, Barbanel and Albo, a few others. But it doesn't seem like there's that much happening. But they're not looking in the right places. If you want to look for, to understand uh, the effect of philosophy even after 1305, which was a watered down band to begin with, which just shows you that uh, they, they were hoping to just keep the status quo and not, uh, things should not get worse. And, and indeed, uh, philosophy was too ingrained at this point. You couldn't simply eliminate it. But you have to look at the right sources. Judy, uh, Jewish literature is primarily a commentatorial literature. It's Perushim. It's the books of the, uh, on other books. And if you look at the commentaries, you don't look for a lot of original works on philosophy in the 14th, 15th century. They should be looking at the commentaries. If you look at commentaries on a vote and Sermonic uh, books, uh, commentaries on Bible like that of the Ralbag and others, it, it permeated with philosophic material. It's just uh, throughout. Whether they take the view of the Rambam or the view of Halevi as to the, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, whether this is a good idea uh, to have this much philosophy, it doesn't matter. They know it. That philosophy uh, is, is now a staple. And just to give you one example of that, in the parish on our vote of Rav Yosef Chayun, who was the chief rabbi in Lisbon in 1496, his parish, Mileda uh, so he's the anti, he takes a Halevian position. He says Jews would be better off without the study of philosophy. Uh, it's too much of it. Let them study more Talmud and, uh, and uh, be pious that way. Uh, not to mention it could be dangerous because I mean, the philosophic work if it's not used properly. Uh, so Chayun says, uh, he actually at one point in his uh, parish, he stops. I was, I'm reading through this and he was intrigued by uh, the term peripatetic philosophy, you know, that's associated with Aristotle. And he says he has his own theory about how the peripatetics got their title peripatetic. And he goes into that for a while because he happens to be interested in philosophy and knows it. He's anti-philosophy, it doesn't matter anymore. Because philosophy is something that's ingrained in the curriculum, it's part of general Jewish knowledge. And whether you're for it or against it, like Chayun is, or like Rav Chazde Kreskas is in the 15th century, Kreskas wrote a whole book called Or Hashem, in which he first, um, the first part of the book is uh, arguments to prove Aristotle's axioms and show, uh, demonstrate them as best he can. And then the second part of the book, he tries to demolish every one of the arguments that he brought in the first part of the book, knocking uh, out the authority of Aristotle and, by, in, uh, by implication, the Rambam uh, that way. Is Kreskas against the, uh, the pervasive, uh, does he like the pervasive uh, influence of philosophy? No. Uh, but he, he, he comes out against it in philosophic categories. He's a good philosopher. He's one of the best philosophers of the period. Uh, he knows the material well because he was well trained in it. And you could look at uh, how many times uh, manuscripts are copied over, philosophic manuscripts, uh, colophons at the end of a manuscript, you know the scribe will write for whom he composed it, what the date was, etc. You'll see sometimes they're composing it for schools of people who are studying philosophy. There's no question philosophy continued after 1305. You have to look at the right places uh, to find it. And with that continues, of course, the controversy to our day, going a little too, uh, over, but I'll just finish with this thought. Uh, uh, who's right? Uh, Rambam or Halevi, the philosophic camp or the anti-philosophic camp? So, uh, do I have time to answer that question? <laughs> so the, uh, okay. So, uh, I'll give you a, an, ex an example to, uh, to answer that question, I think. Uh, there's a pasuk in Divya Yamin. Uh, where David says to his son Shlomo, Shlomo b'nei, da'at elokei avicha v'avdehu. Shlomo, my son, know the God of your fathers and 
serve him, worship him. So, uh, so the Rambam uses that uh, Pasuk in part 3, chapter 51 that we quoted earlier of the guy, the perplexed, as another ayah that uh, philosophic inquiry is essential for religious perfection because it says, Da Da is a catchword. Every philosopher knows that if you have a Pasuk that uses the word Da, that means it's commanding philosophic speculation. And Chovot for example, in the part that the Yeshivas don't read, in, in Shar uh, Risham, he has a whole chapter with Pasuk after Pasuk, Vyadata Hayom, Vashavokalavecha. These are all proofs, he says, that you must philosophically inquire into religious uh, fundamentals. Uh, so the Rambam takes it to mean this is the proof for the philosophic position. But Yehuda Levi also uses the Pasuk. Uh, in the Kuzari, Yehuda Levi says, how, uh, you want to prove from my position? What does that mean? What is it that you're supposed to know? Know the Mesorah that is passed down to you. No need to philosophically speculate. Just take the Mesorah that's given to you and accept it with complete certainty and then and then your service will be on the highest possible level. If you can use the same Pasuk to prove two opposite positions, then it shows it's, it's going to be very difficult to claim that one or the other is the authentic position of Judaism. Therefore, the answer to the question that uh, it's very difficult that, is that the jury is still out as to uh, what is the uh, legitimate uh, position of Judaism on this matter. I think I kept it too long. So if you, I'll, I'll, 